Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Welcome to High Theory. Today we are talking about offshore aesthetics with Sritama Chatterjee. Sritama, welcome to the show and would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Sritama Chatterjee. I am currently a PhD candidate in the Department of English at University of Pittsburgh. And I am writing a dissertation on ordinariness as an aesthetic category in Indian Ocean archipelagic writings. And I am glad to be a part of High Theory. I have been listening to this podcast for the last two and a half years. And whether it's me packing bags and trying to shift continents or just waiting at the airport lounge and binge listening to high theory podcasts. This podcast has been with me in very good times and difficult times. I'm really excited to be here today. We are so glad and thank you. You've been really one of the longest time listeners. And in reciprocation, I am a little familiar with your work. I have been reading your work for a while now. So I'm so excited to ask you, what the heck is offshore aesthetics? Right. So I usually shy away from definitions, but if I have to sort of describe the term offshore aesthetics is a model of literary criticism that I developed while working on an essay on shipbreaking literature in Bangladesh. Because I felt that the current literary frameworks was not quite adequate to capture what I was trying to do in my essay on shipbreaking literatures in Bangladesh. As a critique, it kind of allowed me to understand how literary forms can make visible the insidious ways in which global capitalism functions to conceal the impact that it has on, you know, laboring bodies on the place and the environment. Now, I'm quite aware that in this phrasing offshore and aesthetics, these are two two different things. And there is a necessity to sort of break these terms down to understand what it might mean in the context that I am talking about. So, you know, the way A lot of anthropologists, a lot of economists, historians, and even like black feminist theorists understood offshore is that it is mostly something which is, it's like a tax heaven for corporations. So imagine people or corporations are part of one country and they don't want to pay as much taxes. So they go to another place and sort of create their industry so that then they can get some form of tax benefits. I wouldn't use the word tax evasion because that might not be the correct way to define it. But let's say it is something that is very much made legitimized by the state. So this is like one of the conventional definitions of offshore. The other way to understand offshore in anthropology is that when you try to go to a place where 
it's kind of inaccessible in many ways and you purposely try to create your industry there so that the people who are not engaged with the industry in any form doesn't know what the heck you're doing or the kind of negative impact that it can have on laboring bodies and the environment. So to conceal the effects of the kind of harm that your industry does, they purposely choose a location that is remote and yet it allows them to do the work that they want to do. When it is a place that is illegible because it is not right in front of your eyes, but at the same time, it is something that is legitimized by nation states, right? So it is kind of hanging between this duality of legibility and illegibility at the same time. How do you use literature or how does literature respond Bond to this tension through different forms and methods. Just an FYI to listeners, Shwetama's new article on offshore aesthetics is out right now, and we will link the article in the show notes so that you can go and read. And I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's open access right now? Yes, it's open access till the end of this year. Amazing. Because this is such an interesting bringing together of concepts that might not juxtapose, let's say, out in the wild. Am I understanding it correctly that when you say offshore aesthetics, or if you talk about aesthesis, let's say, you're talking about a literary production in response to disparate economic geography? Uh, may I ask a follow-up question? So how are you understanding production in this regard? Because that would help me to explain the answer. Right. So I don't, I mean, I don't strictly mean production in like a Marxist sense here. When I say production, I mean very simply the creation of a literary text in response to a particular kind of economic disparity, let's say. Offshore aesthetics is a form of, you know, material understanding of text, places, and geographies. And I would differentiate it from something like materialist ecocriticism that a lot of people do because it is not materialist ecocriticism. But when I mean material criticism is that it really takes into aspect particular signifiers of that place and thinks how literature responds to that. To give you an example, yeah. in the shipbreaking literatures of Bangladesh, sand or the tide is such an important trope. Like it really depends on where you are bringing the ship and when it enters in at what place, at what topography does it stop? Because that would help in this mammoth task of breaking the ship, right? So it takes place on the beaches of Bangladesh, the work of shipbreaking. And that sand or the granularity of the sand, it allows for the capital to circulate, but at the cost of devaluation of the laborers' lives who are engaged or involved in this industry, right? So what offshore aesthetics does is that it picks on certain granular material elements of the place itself, whether it's the sand, whether it is the breaking down of the ship into different fragments, whether it is the tide, whether it is the very despicable labor conditions. So it picks on these issues and then tries to make a commentary on it, but in a way that is not fetishized, in a way that is not exoticized, in a way that is not about the aestheticization of precarious lives, but it is about understanding, okay, so how do you use this 
materiality of the place or the granularity of the environment to talk about models of justice, to talk about models of reading, to talk about methods that are ethical and also responds to the conditions of geopolitics and capitalism. That's how I understand the term offshore aesthetics to be. Maybe I can push you a little further towards how within this you know, literary vein of offshore aesthetics, a kind of politics can grow, a labor politics can grow. So anyway, all that preamble, my question is, how do we use offshore aesthetics? When I started thinking about offshore aesthetics as a concept, it was very much influenced by my fieldwork in Sundarbans. And one thing that I realized during my fieldwork in Sundarbans is that people talk about environment and climate in a very specific way. I'm very careful as I say this, that cannot necessarily be understood through the lenses of emergency because the way they understood climate and environment cannot be accommodated within the sort of broader narratives of decarbonization that I was hearing in a lot of climate talks and environment-related talks on Sundarbans itself, right? Though, like, environment is a very, very important, like, concern, and they were concerned about it every day of their lives. So to come back to, like, offshore aesthetics, I think it has, you know, different resonances for different fields. And all that I wanted to do was to sort of open the conversation. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Because you asked me about labor specifically, I can see how labor historians can use the concept to think about why is you know the labor that functions in Bangladesh, in shipbreaking industries, unorganized labor, right? So to think about the consequences that unorganized labor has for environmental justice or the implications of labor organizing for environmental justice, that could be a way for labor historians or, you know, labor organizers to come to this topic. For somebody who's interested in the field of, let's say, post-colonial studies, environmental humanities, or Indian Ocean studies, these are the three fields in which I am trained, I can see how they can use offshore aesthetics to model or think about a more place-based material understanding of the geographies that they work with. In my essay, when I write about offshore aesthetics, I talk about three aspects. One is sort of multimodal narratives, one is list, and one is fragmentation. But, you know, for another geography, the forms of offshore aesthetics could look very different, right? And it's not on me to explain, like, what other forms can emerge out of how they understand or approach offshore aesthetics in their work. Yeah. I also think that, you know, people who do work on like capital and environment and waste can try to see that although I am talking about offshore aesthetics in relation to Bangladesh more specifically, it is operating within South Asia, it is operating within Bangladesh to actually show the world that the consequences of waste, of toxicity, of capital expands far beyond Bangladesh or far beyond South Asia, right? Because I used it as a conceptual way to understand in a very specific way, in a very specific topic. But I can see the kind of opening up it can happen for somebody thinking about geography, thinking about capital more methodologically. And I just think that, you know, there is so much that remains to be done in terms of thinking, what are our methods for post-colonial studies now? And I think that figuring out ways in which we can talk about 
capital and its entanglement with labor and environment is an urgent project that folks who are invested in post-colonial studies can be doing. So we need to be able to push our methodological horizons too. You talked about place-based understanding of climate. Also, you talked about very rooted disciplinary understandings of what offshore could mean and how to kind of break down the hegemony of, and as an ocean studies person, you would understand this as hegemony of land. Okay, so... Can I give a quick, like... Yes. I have to mention that when I, you know, use the word offshore aesthetics, there are some scholars whose names I would like to take because I want people who are listening to this podcast to actually engage with the scholarship of these people whose work has also inspired me. So I'm really thinking about Hannah Apple's you know, brilliant book on offshore work and conditions in New Guinea. Then there's Vanessa Ogle's work on offshore that has been supremely important for me. Somebody's work, I think that's super important, is Nura Lori's work. Thinking about offshore as a temporal category for laborers, especially in like the Gulf states and with the World Cup going on. And somebody whose work has been extremely inspirational for me is definitely Black feminist thinker Tiffany Ledabo King's work on Black Shoals, because I think that showed me how you can bring two disciplines together to make sure that they actually talk, right? So when it comes to the word offshore, I just think that these four people have been a huge inspiration for me. But at the same time, I think there remains so much to be done. Of course, Tiffany Ledebooking is talking about offshore in relation to racial capitalism, where race becomes such an important category. But what happens when you sort of take this concept that has emerged out of Black studies to think about caste and the Muslim society in the labor scene of Bangladesh? That's an entirely different conversation that we need to be making at some point. One conversation that Indian Ocean Studies scholars are not having adequately or definitely not enough is, okay, so how do we think caste in response to global capitalism? And there I think offshore aesthetics can be powerful to think through, though I don't want to like universalize it again. Yeah. That is amazing. So on the shoulders of these giants, on the shoulders of these works, let me ask you my final question, which is how will offshore aesthetics save the world? Yeah, this has always been my favorite question that has been asked on high theory. So here's how I would think about it. One is that, you know, the work that we do within the academy need to resonate with people who are not part of academia. So let's say people working in shipbreaking industry, journalists, lawyers and people who are involved in climate policy talks. People can really use literary narratives. People can really use offshore aesthetics to think about policy briefs, because that's what I would actually want the article to do. And policy briefs that can actually be useful for the country. So for instance, you use offshore aesthetics to write about the impact of waste or understanding the different kind of harm that waste do and some modalities to prevent that harm, right? So this is one way in which I think it can have a concrete action in the world. One can also use offshore aesthetics to advocate for better you know, labor conditions. And this is where we need to be talking to environmental organizers, to nonprofits in the field to understand 
in what ways they may find it useful. Because I don't want offshore aesthetics to become another jargonic term, but to see in what ways for the people and the places that I write about how it could be useful for them. So that's on one level. The second level is that when there is so much of anti-intellectualism within the academy, the work of teaching can definitely have a purpose in changing the narrative. So I see offshore aesthetics and the conversations that we are having today as challenging that mainstream understanding of what constitutes harm, what constitutes environment, or what constitutes an ethical model of literary criticism. To have this conversation, to have the spaces for dialogue in a world where the spaces for dialogues are shrinking with defunding the universities, with departments just being shut down overnight. And I think that as literary critics, when we say we cannot save the world, that's just like too pessimistic of view. And we need to say, hey, yes, we can change the world because not everybody we teach in the classroom today is going to be literature scholars, so to speak. But if I am teaching a category such as offshore aesthetics to them, maybe they would pause and think about the insidious ways in which global capitalism function. I don't want to create this false hope, but at the same time, we need to be functioning with that hope, with that kind of optimism, with that kind of radicalism that maybe, you know, in very granular ways, which is really my favorite word, in very granular, in very small ways that is capable of transforming the society that we live in. And it can probably enable them to think of a world where where we recognize that there is, you know, this capitalist underpinnings on geography. But how do we go beyond that to imagine, to dream the world that we want to be a part of, the world that we want to be lit in? So yes, offshore aesthetics is a critique of global capitalism, but at the same time, it offers as an opportunity to think to re-envision the world that we want to be a part of, where people have safe, accessible conditions to labor equity to the places that they inhabit and to live a healthy, peaceful life. Sudama, thank you so much for coming to High Theory. I know it's been a long time pending, so I'm so glad that this finally happened. Thank you so much for inviting to High Theory, Sharonik. And thank you so much. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Ariane Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Bye.